Our scripture passage this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning. I want to pray. I want to pray for Afghanistan. It's, uh, it's, it's ugly. It's looking bad. It's probably going to get worse. But I want to remind you that half of our New Testament was written by a man who was a former Middle Eastern religious terrorist. And so there's hope. That's what we're going to pray for. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to be those who underestimate your power or those who underestimate the power of the gospel, those who underestimate the transforming power of your grace. And so we pray that that would be happening, especially in Afghanistan now as things are terrible. Would you be at work in a special way? And I pray that you would spare innocent lives, civilians, Americans, that they would be able to get out of there. We ask for your help. We ask for our government to step up. We ask for relief, and we ask for continued courage and strength for your church there, those who know you, those whose hope ultimately lies in another land, that you would strengthen them, you would give them hope, and you would give them abundant opportunities to witness to your goodness and to your grace. Show yourself strong in a moment of weakness, as you love to do. Father, there's none holy like you. There's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And because of that, because of your power and your might and your goodness and your glory, we can ask you to act. I'm so thankful for college students back and many, many guests. I pray for their semester and for their academic year that it would be a fruitful year, that you would lead them and guide them in terms of their studies and their vocations, but oh, so much more than that, God, would they grow in their love for you this year? Would this year be a year, a trajectory-setting year, that they can look back upon and say, that was the year I went deep with Jesus and I've never been the same? So grab hearts, even this morning. Set trajectories. Pray for Hurricane Ida. Pray for your protection and provision there. Pray for the protection of church, churches and church buildings. Pray for the protection of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Pray for the, the saving of lives, but also we pray that you would use it. You would use it for your glory. As we turn to your word, we pray that we would have receptive hearts, attentive ears, and that you would instruct us from your word by your spirit. The grass is going to wither and the flowers are going to fade, but you promise that your word will stand forever. We pray all this through Christ, the King, your Son, 
who lives and reigns with you in the Spirit, ever one God. Amen. Well, this morning we're in sermon number two of a six-week sermon series called Membership Matters. Last week we looked at Jeremiah 31. This morning is going to be more of a topical sermon, but if you're a guest especially, I want you to know that we're actually not big fans of topical sermons around here. We prefer just to walk through books of the Bible, and so we normally do that. We're in the Gospel of Matthew now, but we're taking this break to talk about the matters of membership and why membership matters, seeking to get biblical clarity on this often ignored Topic. And this is one of those series where if you missed last week, it's one of those ones where it really is a package deal. So if you missed, let me encourage you to go listen to last week's. And if you're going to miss another one in the future, let me encourage you to listen to all of them, YouTube, podcast, website. I'm making a case and I need more than one week to do it unless we go for three hours today. I don't want to do that to you. So six sermons. Last week, we talked about the centrality of the church. We saw from Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, that it's through the church, the local church, us, that God is flexing his muscles, that God is displaying his glory and his wisdom to the watching world. Ephesians 3, 10 says it was his eternal purpose, his purpose for the ages, God's eternal purpose. What's he about? He's about the uniting of all things in Christ. And the way he's doing that now is through the church. He's showing off his power and his glory. The church is the apple of God's eye. And so it needs to be the apple of our eye. The church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. And so he need, the church needs to be central. Christ is the head. The church is the body. Again, college students, welcome. Welcome back. It's so good to see some of you haven't seen in several months. And some of you are guests here. Welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you land, let me just encourage you to find a local church and commit to it early. Join it. Use your gifts. Be all in where you are, even if it's for a short period of time. Often say that parachurch ministries provide some good opportunities, but Jesus didn't shed his blood for the parachurch. He did for the local church. Last week, we looked at the importance of the church and what we called or what others have called historically the Baptist mark of the church. What makes Baptist Baptist? Well, not much anymore, but historically... It was regenerate church membership. This idea that the church consists of only believers. That was what Jeremiah 31 was all about last week. The church consists of believers and only believers. Now, that doesn't mean we don't welcome unbelievers to our services. Maybe you're here and you don't know if you're a believer. Welcome. We want you here. But that's different than joining the church. It is only Christians who join local churches. And one of the reasons why I think churches in America are so weak is because we've stopped practicing meaningful membership. We haven't practiced church discipline. We haven't focused on building a culture of discipleship. We've just let anyone join our churches, regardless of whether or not they know the gospel, regardless of not, we've even heard their testimony. We've been consumers, not contributors. We've treated church as a Sunday event rather than part of our very identity as a Christian. And so this week, sermon number two on Membership Matters, I want to focus on church governments, church leadership. I wonder if you've ever been part of a church where something went wrong. That does happen. Churches are filled with sinners. There are no perfect churches. And once you join it, it will no longer be perfect. If it existed, they're messy. We're sinners. We often hurt one another. Sometimes there's hurt and conflict within the church, but most of the time when things go wrong, 
It's a church leadership issue in some form or fashion, a church government issue. One, one book says that church government, it's a lot like plumbing, the plumbing of a house, right? Maybe some of you have been involved with the building of a house. Maybe you built one or maybe family has built a house and tons and tons of decisions. I don't think I would ever want to enter that world myself. So many decisions, which some of it's fun and some are wired to enjoy that sort of thing of the paint and the floors and the lights and the cabinets and the door handles and the countertops, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But something that never really gets talked about in the house building process is the plumbing. No one wants to talk plumbing. Very few want to talk plumbing. We just assume it's all going to work. But if it doesn't, your countertops don't matter much, do they? The accessories don't matter if you don't have running water in your house. Plumbing is a necessary foundational component to the house. And church leadership's like plumbing. Not a lot of people are excited about it. It's often ignored, but it's vital for the health of a church. Many Christians will go to churches they won't even consider. They won't even ask, how is the church ordered? They look usually at the wrong things. They'll look at the frilly things like the external things. What's, what's the aesthetics like? What's the worship environment like? The countertops. Is the preacher a relatable door handles? But they never ask, does the plumber work? Plumbing work. Many don't think or care to think much about church government. But listen, friends, next to the handling of the word, what we call here at Southside expositional preaching, preaching through verse by verse books of the Bible, expositional preaching, next to expositional preaching, church leadership is the most important thing about a local church. Because if leadership goes off, eventually something will go wrong. Vitally important. And here's the thing. God cares deeply about how his church is ordered. He wants it to be ordered rightly, and he wants you, Christian, to care about how his church is ordered. You know, the New Testament has 27 books. God gave us three whole books that deal with how the church ought to be ordered for his church, not for the leaders, for you, for Christians. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. We call them the pastoral epistles. Listen to what the Spirit through Paul says in Titus 1, verse 5. Telling Titus how things ought to be, right? Paul's the apostle. Titus is one of his protégés. He says this, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so a church would be planted and that church would need to be then ordered rightly. And the first step here is the appointment of a plurality of elders. Paul's going to go on. What does he want done in the church? Fresh church. Order rightly. Listen to 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says, if I delay to Timothy now, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is 1 Timothy 3.15. This is right after he's laid out the qualifications for overseers and deacons. This is what Josh just read. And now he says, this is how you're to behave in the church. This is how to conduct yourselves in the church. God wants us to know how to behave in his church rightly. So that's why church government is really important. Now, different church class Christian traditions have ordered themselves in different ways. So you have what we could call the Episcopalian model. Maybe some of you have this background and basically that model, it's not limited to Episcopalians, but it's where there's one archbishop 
who has authority over other bishops who have authority over an area or a region. It's what the way the Catholic Church is modeled. Obviously, Episcopalians and Anglicans, Methodists. Even some multi-site churches are ordered this way that have multiple locations with one. They don't necessarily call him an archbishop, but a lead pastor. Then there are the Congregationalists. Now, Baptists historically have been Congregational, and that's where the final authority lies within the congregation. And Congregationalism has a really bad rap. Maybe you've had some stories as well. And the reason it has a bad rap, back to last week's sermon, is because we haven't practiced regenerate church membership. And so the church has been filled with people who may be believers, may not. And listen, this may surprise you. If the church is ran by unbelievers, things are going to go wrong. There are going to be problems. Some of you may have experienced this model. It's often ran by committees. I still, I still get a tick. I hear church committees. Really, three main problems with church committees. Number one, they're not in the Bible. They're not in the Bible. Number two, really anyone who has the time, regardless of spiritual maturity, can serve on a committee and then run the church, lead the church, make decisions. No lie. The church, first church I pastored, this man ran the church. I mean, he ran it. It was his church. I wasn't a believer. He was not a believer. This was 10 years ago. He committed suicide about a year ago. At the time, we, obviously we butted heads as I'm trying to lead the church in a God-glorifying way. And this unbeliever who was in an affair in the church that everybody knew for a decade. And they were scared of him. I wasn't. At least publicly. I actually called a few friends. Hey, listen, if I go missing, <laughs> dead serious, call three friends. This is the guy. So anyone, regardless of whether or not they're a believer or regardless of spiritual maturity, they can serve on a committee. And then third, they're often utterly inefficient. They're a waste of time, right? Committee meetings are where minutes are kept and hours are lost. There's one Baptist committee meeting. A motion was made to stop doing motions because that sounds too much like dancing. What's a church committee's favorite sporting event? the Daytona 500 because they also go in circles and never get anywhere. <laughs> I could go on forever. Third model is the Presbyterian model. And the Presbyterian model is really the way we function at Southside as of late. And it's the idea that elders, the word elder is presbyteros, Presbyterian, elders run the church. Now in the Presbyterian model, there are layers. And so there are elders who lead over a group of churches then down to the, the local session of elders. But there's also Bible churches where elders will rule, elder rule. And we're making a shift. This is where we've been. There's a lot of Bible verses to back it up, but there's some that don't quite fit. And so we're making a shift to the last option, which we call elder-led congregationalism. Make a lot more sense after this whole sermon series. By the way, on September 5th, next Sunday night, part of what we'll do there is just have questions. So if you have questions from last week or this week or next week, bring them to September 5th at 5. We'd love to get some clarity. We want everyone with clarity. And this view does justice to all the verses. Elders do lead very clearly in the Bible. We're going to see that today mostly. But the congregation has final authority when it comes to doctrine and discipline. And that's what the rest of the series is going to be about. So let me give you a couple resources because I know this is new to many. Two, number one, this is a little short book called Understanding Church Leadership. It's over here in our Welcome Center, like five bucks, I think. I'm not sure how much it is, but cheap. 
And so you can buy that over there, but we want to give you a gift. Every family, this book right here, which you can see down here, please grab it on your way out. And it's called Understanding the Congregation's Authority. This book advocates for where we're headed with elder-led congregationalism. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. That's next week's sermon. Elders lead, but in doctrine and discipline, the congregation holds final authority. Elders lead out, but the congregation, you, are responsible for membership and discipline. That'll make a lot more sense next week. We want to follow the word. We want to be a rightly ordered gospel church. Why? Because we will then display God's character by organizing our church the way God has prescribed. He knows best. And so we trust he's going to bless churches that follow his will for the church. Been reading a lot of Baptist history, 18th century stuff. So encouraged because it's exactly what we are doing at Southside. And there's one group of churches. So a bunch of churches got together in an association in Charleston in 1774. And they wrote this document to guide them. And here's what they said about this idea of rightly ordered churches. A church constituted after the heavenly pattern... God's word is as a city set on a hill from which the glories of rich and free grace abundantly shine. So we want to have a church ordered the way God says his church should be ordered. So let's consider then the who and the what of church leadership. Who are they and what are they called to do? And in a sentence, it's this. God's will for his church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders who are responsible for a particular flock. And so I want to unpack this in five pieces. First, the church is to be led by elders. Elder, it's this term that's used more than any other title in the New Testament, some 17 times to refer to church leaders. The church is to be led by elders, but it's really important to know that there are a couple other titles used. I think this might be why there's a little bit of confusion and why there's different views because they miss this aspect that there are a couple other titles used for the same office. Overseer, King James was bishop, is only used four times. And believe it or not, did you know the noun, the title pastor is only used one time in the whole New Testament? It's mostly elders. But these three titles are interchangeable. They all three refer to the same office. So an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. Let me look at some passages. I've got them for you on the screen. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul's about to leave Ephesus. And so he gathers the elders together. So notice what he says there. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. And then he gives them this last account, which I wish we had time to read, but let's skip down to verse 28. Notice what he says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so he's speaking to the elders and he says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to do what? The word there is pastor, shepherd, care. So elders are those who oversee and pastor. You tracking with me? Interchangeable terms. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter's writing, So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder, nothing really special about Peter, he's a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising overseership, oversight, same verb, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So notice Peter's writing to the elders and he's telling them to be overseers and he's telling them to shepherd. You tracking? An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. One more, one more. Titus chapter one. Paul's laying out the qualifications for elders. And in verse five, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, read this already, so that you may might, might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So notice there in the, in the midst of two verses, he's speaking to elders and he just switches and calls them overseers. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. So practically that means when we have a, a board of elders in a local church, it's not just to be a group of decision makers. It's a group of shepherd leaders. It's a group of pastors. So the church is to be led by elders. Second aspect is to be led by a plurality of elders. Everywhere it is in the plural. There is not a shred of evidence for one man leading the church. It is always plurality. One of my favorite passages is Acts 14 about this. So again, think about Acts. The church is new. The gospel is spreading. It's going to new places, going from Jerusalem, Samaria, ends of the earth. And notice what we see in Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is New Testament missions right here. Acts 14, 21 to 23. Gospel goes forth. The gospel is preached, which by the way, you may be here in a non-Christian and you don't need to hear about church leadership just yet. You need to hear about the gospel and the gospel just means good news. It's good news that God hasn't left us to himself. God is holy. We are sinful. We have fallen short, all of us. That's why we are here. This is a group that have come together with a common confession. We fall short. Our sin is great. Jesus is greater. God hasn't left us to our sin. He sent his son to live a perfect life, to die the death we deserve. That's what we've been singing about all morning. He raised from the dead and he was ascended to the right hand. And now our response is faith and repentance, turning from sin to the Lord. That's what they do. They go preaching this gospel. But notice what that verse says happens next. They make disciples. They encourage them. They encourage them to remain, to persevere. And then what's the next thing they do? They appoint a plurality of elders in every church, New Testament missions. Go preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, raise up elders, go to the next city. This is the New Testament pattern. The heavenly pattern as the old Baptist called it. If I may be so bold 
as to say, if a church does not have a plurality of elders, it is not yet a biblically ordered church. It's not a rightly ordered church. So let's follow the pattern of the apostles. God knows best. His plan is wise. First Timothy five, towards the end of first Timothy five, let the elders plural who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching elders, plural rule or lead. Third aspect, the church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders, not just anybody. What matters most about an elder? Their character. Many a church has gotten in trouble because they've focused on competency rather than character. We already read 1 Timothy 3 with those qualifications. Let me read a little further in Titus 1. I just read 5 to 7. Let me pick up at verse 8. Supposed to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You'll notice the emphasis in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 and Titus 1, 1 to 9 is on character, spiritually qualified. Fourth aspect, the church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders. Now, this one will get me in hot water real quick today, especially in Abilene. But the Bible really couldn't be any clearer. Let me read 1 Timothy 2.12. Again, this is in 1 Timothy. This is one of the pastoral epistles. God's telling us how to behave in his church, how to rightly order his church. And this is what he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I mean, you really can't get any clearer than that. I know it's offensive and counterculture, but here it is. And what you'll run into, especially college kids, you'll run into very smart people with Bible degrees that come up with all kinds of clever reasons to say it doesn't say what it sure sounds like it says. People with PhDs coming up with all kinds of backgrounds and reasons that it was only for that particular church. It was only for then, but now we know and actually what Paul meant to actually say was the opposite of what it says on the pages of Scripture. I do not permit a woman to teach a man or exercise authority over a man then becomes, I do permit a woman to teach a man and exercise authority over a man. I often tell our membership class when we're talking about this, I fear the Lord too much to do that to God's word. James 3 says, ought not, many ought not to be teachers. Why? Because we'll be judged with stricter judgment at the end of the day. I fear him, not contemporary culture. And so we want to submit, not distort or undermine or flat contradict scripture even when it's offensive and we lose friends from it. And it doesn't work in this passage anyway, because Paul gives us the reason. That's 1 Timothy 2, 12. He gives us the reason for that command. And he doesn't say, because this was going on in Ephesus at the time, or this was going on in that culture. He says, for, and then he gives a few reasons in the next few verses. And they're basically that the created order is this way. This is the way God created it. It wasn't cultural, it's creational. Now, listen, if you want to learn more, I don't have time today, but I've got a 30-page, 90-foot note paper I would love to send you on this passage. Hit me up. I'll send it to you. Fifth aspect, the elders are called to be a plurality, spiritually qualified male 
And they are called to pastor a particular flock. This is where membership comes in most especially. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. We probably as elders talk about this verse more than any other verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And so friends, if we don't have regenerate church membership, which leaders are you to obey? This is a verse for all Christians. It says, obey your leaders. Who are you to obey? Any Christian leader, period? Well, of course not. This is called to submit to a specific local church and its leaders, the one you've committed to. And on the second half of this verse, which souls are leaders keeping watch over as elders? Whose souls are we to watch over? Is it anyone that walks into this room? Or even more significantly, notice what the verse says. It says, we will have to give an account. And so which souls are we going to have to give an account for on judgment day? Listen, if that's anybody who walks into this room, I quit. It's not what it's saying, though. It's not what it means. So members of a local church are to follow their local church, lead, church leaders and leaders of a local church are to watch over the souls of the members and they'll be accountable for those members, those believers who've covenanted with this particular flock. Or as I already read in Acts 20, again, Paul to the elders, he says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so elders are to oversee and to care for the particular members of a local church. And, you know, this really gets at the heart of why all this matters on our end as elders. For members, meaningful membership is really about loving one another intentionally, helping one another follow the Lord. For elders, this is about effectively shepherding you. This is so that we might most effectively watch over your souls. Same with 1 Peter 5 too. He said, elders are to pastor the flock of God that is among you at that local church, exercising oversight. And so elders are responsible for the flock that God has put them over. And we need meaningful membership to do that well. And so God's will for his church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders who are responsible for a particular flock. I really don't know where we got off, even in Baptist life, from this model. It's so clear in the Bible and so helpful. Let me give you 10 benefits. First, it's the biblical model. We could stop there. But there's a lot of practical benefits to it. Balances pastoral weakness. It adds pastoral wisdom. Listen, friends, if it's just me, this place is not going to be healthy. I'm young. I've got a lot of weaknesses, and I lack a lot of wisdom. You add 6, 8, 10 spiritually qualified men, it's going to help. Number four, it enables corrective discipline of the staff if needed. What if things go awry? And I mentioned they do go awry. Well, a plurality of elders sure helps. Number five, it increases confidence in the members of the church. Number six, it provides a stronger defense against false teaching. Number seven, it provides continuity of leadership. If I were to pass away today, 
Southside's going to be just fine. Why? A continuity of like-minded, godly, strong elders who will lead this church forward. Won't miss a beat. I mean, I hope you'd come to my funeral. <laughs> Cry. But then you're going to go eat Tex-Mex and move right on. And this church is going to be fine. Number eight, it provides pastors for pastors. Number nine, it diffuses congregational criticism. Pastors get a lot of criticism about a lot of things. We have a plurality of elders here where I'm not one making calls. I'm not one calling the shots up here. We've got a team of men who think through things to lead well. Number 10, it protects against burnout by alleviating pressure and responsibility to one person, which is also huge. I've got the long haul here. I want to be here 30 years. And so having other brothers to help with the work is vital. So that's who they are. That's who the church is to be led by. What is their calling? What are they called to do? Well, this will be brief because we've already hit so much of it, but let me mention six callings of church leaders. Number one, they're to oversee. We've seen that. It's in the very word. First Timothy three, overseers. First Timothy five uses the language of ruling well, leading. And so it's using God given authority to bless those underneath it. Number two, what are they called to do? Shepherd, pastor, care, Lead the flock to the good pasture. Feed them the word. Go after strays. That's a lot of what shepherds do, right? God could have chosen any animal he wanted to describe Christians, right? Lions. They, they, they go together, right? They're in a flock of sorts. Cheetahs. He chose sheep. <laughs> sheep. Some of the dumbest animals there are. Some of you have worked with sheep. Sheep are like intent on killing themselves. You've seen Secret Life of Pets too, where they get, Max gets the assignment to go save Cotton, little sheep, you know, and he's like climbing out on the, on the branch over the cliff. He's about to fall to his death and he's like, there's apples in this tree. <laughs> they're intent, they're just foolish. And that's what we are, friends. We need help. We need one another. And shepherds are sheep as well. But shepherds are called to shepherd the flock, to help keep us together, to keep us from falling off the cliff going after an apple. Shepherd number three, we teach. You know, there's only one skill listed in the Bible for leaders. Modern day church world is all skills. In the Bible, there's one skill. The rest is character. The one skill is able to teach. So while too many are looking for the dynamic leader and the magnetic personality or the relatable person or the catalytic multiplier, you fill in the blank, not the Bible. The Bible says character matters in one skill. That's the ability to teach. God wants his church led by godly men who know the word. The ability to articulate sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. That's what Titus 1.9 says. The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Josh read for us 1 Timothy 3.2. He must be able to teach. If you read those pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that's one of the main emphasis is able to teach and teach sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. Three books of the Bible, it's mentioned some 48 times. God cares about the truth. And so elders must be theologically astute, knowing what the church believes, what it has believed, and why. 
able to teach. Number four, they need to be equippers. They need to be those who train. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Jesus, the ascended Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors. There's the only time the noun pastors use right there. And teachers. Why? Why did Jesus gift the church with leadership? To equip. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so through teaching, shepherds and teachers equip the church so that you, the member, may do the ministry. And what is the ministry? It's, well, it's to help one another mature. It's word work, speaking the truth in love, building one another up so that we might reach maturity. Fifth, calling is to be a model. An example, there to be godly men who model what it looks like to follow Jesus. There to be above reproach, not perfect, but the mud doesn't stick. Be able to look at them and they're at above reproach. There's a big emphasis here on the way they manage their house. You ought to be able to look at their house and those underneath his authority are faithful and flourishing. Kids are obedient. Wife is happy. Should be able to say, look at an elder and be like him. What elders must be, all men ought to be. Ought to be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, be able to say without hesitation, follow me as I follow Christ. And then sixth, multipliers. Good leaders raise up leaders. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2 says this. Paul again to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice four generations. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. So healthy churches ought to have an abundance of leaders, training leaders. God's will for his church is to be led by a plurality of spiritually qualified male elders who are responsible for a particular flock. They're leaders, they're shepherds, they're teachers, trainers, examples, and multipliers. Served by deacons, meeting practical needs. What do elders need from you, the church member? Trust. Submission and respect, the Bible says, so long as we're following the word. That's the key qualifier, isn't it? Christ rules his church through his word. We're just the under shepherds. First Thess 5, 12 and 13 says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the proper sense of respect and trust, so long as the word is being honored. Realistic expectations. We will disappoint you. We try hard not to, but we will. And so we need the benefit of the doubt. We need you to assume the best. We need you to give grace. Pastors need grace too. Have patience with us. And please, 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 most importantly, pray. Pray for us and specifically for our holiness. Because if we're following the Lord, everything else is going to work out just fine. Pray for our holiness regularly.
That's who the elders are. That's what they do. What about that congregationalism piece, right? Elder-led congregationalism. What authority does the congregation have? Well, next week we're going to see Jesus says, you are to exercise the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 18. So I hope you'll be back. Let's pray. Father, so thankful for your word. You didn't leave us in the dark. You didn't leave us just to be able to do whatever we thought might work. You didn't leave us to just follow the the current popular CEO paradigms or whatever Fortune 500 seems to be doing it right. No, you've laid it out all so clearly for us that we might be a rightly ordered gospel church. And we're thankful for the clarity of your word. And we're thankful for this church and years of previous past leadership that has been faithful. We're thankful for a plurality of pastors over the last 15 years at this church. Godly men, you have blessed this church through godly leadership. Men who fear you and want to follow you. And we're so thankful for that. So thankful for the current eldership that you've given us and pray for us, pray for our holiness, pray that we would continually be in prayer and in your word, seeking to follow you, fighting sin, leading our families well. Give us favor as we continue to do that. And we pray as a result from all this, you bless this church. As a result from all of this right structure, would you make the mission flourish? We want to see Jesus lifted high, Jesus exalted in our own hearts, in this church and in the community and in the nations. And so we pray that you would bless our efforts to that end. For our joy and your glory, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.